Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and it is an absolute honor to be joined today by a man who is considered the greatest male diver of all time. I, of course, believe that myself, too. Mr. Greg Luganis. And Greg won gold medals in the 1984 and 1988 Summer Olympics on both the springboard and platform. And to date, he is the second diver in Olympic history to sweep the diving events in consecutive Olympic Games. Now, Greg is also an activist for the LGBTQ causes and many more. And he's also an author and motivational speaker. So Greg, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, listen, before we get started, I am going to fanboy out a little bit because, um, you know, I watched the 84 Olympics and I watched the 88 Olympics and literally in the 80s for me at that time in 84, after I saw you dive, it was like, I loved Madonna, Michael Jackson, Prince, Mary Lou Retton and Greg Luganis. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my five. Oh, I'm flattered. I'm very flattered. Yeah, well, it was really great to watch you and your moment there at that time. So, but before we talk about your new course, which is part of your motivational speaker uh, series, your new course is actually uh, called Finding Your Rhythm. But before we get into that, I do want to talk a bit about your legacy, your backstory, which really made you the icon you are today. Now, People don't really realize, I guess, how different the world was 1980s versus now for for gay people. But if you wouldn't mind, talk a little bit about being a gay athlete at that time and some of the fear you had with being, I guess, exposed by the media. You know, I always wanted my diving to be about the diving. I felt that if I came forward with my sexual identity, I mean, I was out to friends and family. And people who were close to me, people in USA Diving knew about my sexual identity. I mean, I was encouraged by my agent said, you know, okay, keep the gay thing, you know, just not be so open about that. Because the concern was, you know, uh, commercial endorsements, people wouldn't want to work with you. And, you know, I'm sure it did cost me potential sponsors. And so that was the concern. I justified it in the way that everybody's entitled to a private life. And so I just maintained that. And also back in, in those days, the sports reporters, they were actually very respectful. In this day and age with social media, we are, we are in so much in people's lives, in, in their personal lives. So it's, it's really kind of a hard line. But I was just... You know, I just didn't discuss my personal life with members of the media. It was, uh, I wanted the focus to be on, on the diving. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a real warm and welcoming atmosphere to be open and gay. The diving team is a really small team. And so when we travel internationally, you know, they'd have meetings that I wasn't invited to. <laughs> you know, it was who is in a room with the fag? My feeling was, okay, you should be so flattered. 
<laughs> right, you know? right. But, you know, it's just like, it, you know, that was an issue. And really, a lot of people say that, that, you know, they try to identify that as homophobia. But, you know, in meeting up with a lot of those guys, you know, it was more about jealousy than it was homophobia. Because yeah, I was winning at the time. I, I think it, to a small degree it was homophobia, but you know it wasn't a real welcoming atmosphere during those years. Yes, and then you compile that with the fact that the epidemic for HIV and AIDS was sort of just beginning to to infiltrate the news cycle and just every day our psyche. And I can remember the the hysteria of like the dynasty kiss. <laughs> you right, know, with, right. with Rock Hudson and all that. And people didn't know, like, if you could be in a room with a gay person that you might, like, implode or something, right? It was just yeah. a bunch of silliness to a degree. But then you did have a very real, I guess you had a real moment where you disclosed your HIV status at the time, which was definitely such a trailblazing thing to do. That was, like, I guess 95 is when you actually did it. So it was past, I guess, right. your Olympics. Uh, but still, it was a pretty bold thing to do. I mean, what made you make that decision? I, you know, I, I knew that it was my next step in my journey because I was doing a play. I was doing Jeffrey in New York at the Minetta Lane Theater. And my character that I played, Darius, I was able to kind of live out my fantasies and face my fears because Darius was out and proud and gay pride parades. And, you know, he was in Cats. Um, <laughs> cast member in Cats, but he also dies in the play and he, his spirit comes back and he tells the main character I, I felt was a very poignant moment is to hate AIDS, to tell Jeffrey mm. to hate AIDS, not life. Mm. And so that was kind of my journey. And then, you know, doing the play for six months, I, I went to a friend of mine, Robbie Brown. And I said, you know, I want to write a book. Because with my HIV, I felt that not many people knew about my HIV status. There was still mm. so much stigma surrounding HIV, you know, like some of the mentality across the country, especially in the Bible Belt, was, oh, it's killing the right people, you know, um, IV drug users and, you know, prostitutes and gay men. And so there was just this, it, like you said, it was a mass hysteria. And also... The reality of it was we were going to memorials every weekend, you know, several memorials in a weekend. And so, you know, and you, and you just heard all these horror stories. So, yeah, so there wasn't a whole lot of compassion. I, I do remember that uh, when I came out, I actually was pointed out to me at, way, way after the fact, because I don't read my press. But one thing I learned was that they were trying to take my medals away from me. Because I was, uh, I competed in, in Seoul, Korea, which they had a travel ban surrounding HIV. So had they known my HIV status, I wouldn't have been able to compete at the Olympics. And that is the one where you hit your head on the That's springboard. That's hit my head, right. Which terrified me, by the way. I was like, Lord, he is not going to come out that pool. I was <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So you, you just, and you, and you bled in the pool. I think that was the controversy. Well, I, that's, I mean, that's the speculation, but when you get an injury like that, you know, you have the impact and the injury, you know, especially on the head, it doesn't bleed right away. Take some time. Cause like when I, you know, got out of the pool, I was holding my head. I 
went uh, around the, the corner to my coach. And then, you know, that's when he noticed a little trickle of blood running down. And so he pushed the blood back up into my hairline. So as we passed the Chinese, because he didn't want them to know that I bled red. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, the show must go on. I mean, you know, you are a trained actor. So, you know, yeah. all aspects. And, and see, that's where the chorus is so important to me, finding your rhythm, because that's how I train. I train from the inside out. And one of the, the things, I started dancing and doing acrobatics when I was a year and a half. I was performing on stage when I was three. And so what happened was, you know, I had my new, my costume. It was the day of the rehearsal, have my costume. So I have a top hat and I was given a cane. So some of the choreography changed, you know, it was adjusted. And so what my teacher did, she played the music. She said, okay, and you know, do the routine fluid, put the music on and left the room. As a three-year-old, my interpretation was, okay, imagine myself doing the routine and making it fluid, making all of those transitions. And so it took four times. And then I found her and I said, okay, I made it fluid. And she came back and she turned the tempo up to make it faster than what I would be performing. Mm. And so she said, make it fluid. And she played the music and I said, it was fluid. And she said, okay, you're ready. Wow, that fast. Because at three years old, had I done the routine over and over and over and over again, my muscles would have been, you know, so fatigued, I wouldn't be able to perform. So that is how I learned visualization. Right. So you almost, um, in that regard, I guess, even to simplify it more, it's almost in a way like there's no one way that people will learn and adapt to something. So in your case, you sort of had a system. You created a system in which you learned that routine quickly, but apparently that sort of process for you carried you all the way through all your successes up to being the greatest diver in the world, basically. Is that sort of the assessment? Yeah. Yeah, because like towards the end of the 70s, in the late 70s, the sports psychologist started coming around the pool and saying, Oh, have you tried visualization or mental imagery? And I'm like going, duh, doesn't everybody do that? You know, I thought, you know, as a three-year-old, your perception doesn't go much beyond yourself. And here I had all of these years of practicing this, whether it be a dance routine, gymnastics, diving, it, it all was connected because I just thought that's how you did things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And today you see that it's like mood boards are important are big now and all kinds of visualization apps and things, right? That's like a big thing today. Right. And, and the thing in, in working with elite athletes, working with, you know, the various people that, that I work with CEOs and, and all of that dog agility athletes, the one thing that was interesting because I thought, well, the way that I learned this process was, okay, visualization and then relaxation, breathing exercises and relaxation, being aware of your body. And then working with people, I realized, oh, no, 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 no. You have to learn the 
awareness, body awareness and relaxation in the breathing exercises first, then you can mm-hmm. layer into the visualization and the visual visualization games that I give in the course have absolutely nothing to do with how you're going to use the visualization right. because it's all about having fun, playing, you know, being playful, tapping into your adrenal response in a, in a roller coaster ride and tapping into the feelings of baking cookies with somebody that you love and the textures and smells and, you know, what you hear, what all of you utilizing, incorporating all of your senses, because that's what true visualization is, is the experience and the true experience, the more real you can make that experience, the greater benefit you're going to have in your visualization work. I think one of the biggest problems with that, though, for many people is that we sort of get in our own way. We are the ones who are the doubters the most, right? We are the most doubting voice sometimes in the conversation. And so I think through exercises like what you are sharing, and tell me if this makes sense, you're almost flushing that negative voice out because you're replacing it with what you just mentioned, things like sensory, texture, sound, sights, emotion, right? And I think that becomes more of a positive experience versus you like just beating yourself up over and over again for things. Right. Because because when we start visualization work and and we're, we're told we're supposed to visualize, you're supposed to relax, you're supposed to breathe, you're supposed to do all of these things, you know, and then we're always concerned, am I doing it right? Is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Is this right? But if you approach it as a game... And you don't take it too seriously and you practice those elements, then you start developing this awareness of, oh my God, I have this incredible sense of smell. So, you know, that triggers a a feeling, a thought, you know, it gets into your body or an adrenal response that you can raise your body temperature just with your thoughts, just with your mind and you know, and activate those things without judgment because it's a game. I think we feel confined to the consequences of our past, so to speak, right? We are not living in the present. I think that's a part of it as well. You know, beating yourself up over what you did 10 days ago or 10 years ago. So in these conversations I've had with successful people, CEOs, what I find is a common denominator that I love is accountability, right? Like the moment that they accept, okay, you know, I did that. That wasn't the best idea. I'm going to move forward now and try not to do that again. And now replace it with something better, more positive. And, you know, I seem like that feels like as a part of your, your course as well. Yeah. And also, I mean, with, with the kids that I work with, if you feel off balance, smile. If you are feeling stressed, Get back in touch with your breathing. And if you're really super stressed and you're tense, dance. Mm, yeah. That's Make a good one. Dance, you yeah. know, because then that way it moves that energy, you know, mm-hmm. because what we're doing and we're doubting ourselves, we're blocking that energy. So how to free that energy up for full expression? 
Because if you think about it, and it, it, it's interesting because I did some, you know, thinking about this, a dive takes less than three seconds. In that three seconds is chaos. It's a free fall, total free fall. And in that three seconds is your creation. And that's what peak performance is all about. I was so grateful that I had diving as my sport because in a three meter springboard competition, I had 11 opportunities to practice peak performance, to create those three second creations, less than three second creations. Yeah. And then once that creation is done, it's like a snowflake. It can never be reconstructed, except it, it, it's visually on film. But even on film, when you, you know, it lacks that, that energy, then if you're present, you know, it's like going yeah. to a live theater event, you know, that's so totally different from seeing, seeing something on the screen that you see over yeah. and over again. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up the, uh, what you can do within three seconds, because when uh, Christine, my associate producer, talked to Beth and we connected everything, we were like, yay, we got Greg. He's going to do our show. She shared in our little marketing group a GIF of you that's, you know, animated GIF of one of your dives. And we were like, how can he do that in such a quick amount of time? Like we literally were just talking about how many turns you may, I think it was like four, maybe. Is that like the three and a half? I, three and a half. So you're like, you're almost at a fourth full rotation as you go into the water. And we're like, how do you, how do you do that within those few seconds? But the way you just described it, it's almost like it's a metaphor for maximizing an opportunity in whatever time you have. That's pretty much what I just got from what you said. Yeah. And, and also too, I mean, it, it is rhythm. Everything has a rhythm. You know, comedy has a rhythm. Drama has a rhythm. The diving board has a rhythm. You just have to listen to it and pay attention. Music, poetry, it all has a rhythm. And tapping into the correct rhythm, allowing yourself to tap into that appropriate rhythm, that is what success is all about. You know, I guess it's more about having a full contented life once you... I guess, make the right decisions about how you want to live your life. I think so often people don't make the decision to be happy. And I think that sounds a little Oprah-ish, right? Maybe. But I think you have to make a decision to say, I don't want to be in this state of flux anymore, or I don't want to be miserable anymore. So what can I do right, to change that? And see, the thing is, a lot of times when we start saying, oh, I should do this, I mean, I just made a post on this. No, don't should on your life. You know, that, <laughs> That's you know great. don't should on your life because oftentimes when I find that I, I'm thinking, oh, I should do this, I should do that. Those voices are not mine. Oftentimes it's, it really is my parents' voice or an authority figure or maybe, you know, a fan makes an, a random comment of what I should be doing. You know, and so it's not really authentically me. You know, mm -hmm. where is Greg in this, in right. those shoots? Is that my voice or is that somebody else's voice? Mm. 
Yeah, that's a big point too, because I just mentioned how we are sometimes our own worst enemy with that, but there are also the outside voices, and that does include very often family, and they can be the worst sometimes, <laughs> quite honestly. People who know you the best can be the most critical. Who do you think is the ideal person to take your course? The younger, the better, actually. You know, when when you think about it, because a young mind, I mean, well, I was three years old when I learned, you know, visualization because I had an active imagination. And so tapping into that, but it's going to help you in anything you do because you're always confronted with challenges, you know, and you can experience those challenges in in many different ways in your imagination. So then you're more prepared and able to make the adjustments necessary, not overreacting, overreacting or underreacting, but being being able to be present, you know, being able to do the visualization, let it go, and enjoy the experience. Awesome. Well, I will make sure that everyone who listens to our podcast and watches our podcast will have the link where they can go and find out more about your course, the Finding Your Rhythm. And we just really appreciate your time being here today. And again, for me, it's just, uh, it's an honor because you also are associated with another one of my favorite memories, which is my grandmother, my late grandmother, who passed about 20 years ago now. She was not very into sports at all, but those 84 Olympics prime time. That was her thing. That was our thing. And so she got to see you dive and she'd be like, how did that boy do that? <laughs> you know? So so my memories of like the 84 games, you know, you're just a part of that as well. So just thank you for being you. And I appreciate you being here today on Motivational Mondays. Well, thank you. That's such a beautiful share. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.